Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk about soft skills, the ability to navigate smoothly and effectively through social and professional situations. Along the way, we mention the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, making an expectations game plan, and snapping a Boeing 777 wingspan. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 117, Soft Skills, September 30th, 2016. So, Jeff, do you have any similarities with the Marshmallow Man uh, from the movie Ghostbusters? Uh, maybe more than I care to admit. <laughs> I mean, certainly, uh, I'm not that tall. I'm not that big, uh, except maybe around the, you know, the soft middle area. As, as I've grown older, the, uh, the belly has added uh, a little, you know, a few inches. And uh, so maybe in that regard, I'm, I'm like the uh, Marshmallow Man. Are there any characteristics of the Marshmallow Man that you wish you had? Uh, well, I mean, being the physical incarnation of uh, Zool, um, <laughs> the destroyer. Right. Uh, and happening to work for State Puff. Um, no, I don't have any characteristics <laughs> I'd like of the State Puff Marshmallow Man. I, I imagine transportation's kind of a pain in the butt. Um, it would be, but but he does kind of look like the Michelin Man, right? He does. So maybe he has a, a deal on tires or something. Well, I mean, you mean like as a, a paid spokesperson? Yeah, That's yeah. A, okay, and, and they would find a way to get him around from place to place, or maybe he has a, a they have a giant Uber car to get him from place to place. Well, here's the question that's never really answered in the movie is what is the actual density of the State Puff Marshmallow Man? I mean, is he really that heavy, or is he mostly mm. air? Ooh, that is a good question. Because hmm. because he he does look like the the Michelin Man. He might be all the density of of tires, which would be pretty heavy, as opposed to uh, you know your typical marshmallow. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Actually, there's a uh, engineering, uh, or at least a chemistry Easter egg inside of that movie, and it I giggle every single time I see it when they're in the jailhouse talking about the building, and they go. You know, the blankety blank floor of the building is made out of entire, is made entirely out of selenium. And somebody goes, well, they don't make them like they used to. And Ray responds, they never made them like this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, chemistry jokes. Well, although I don't have many physical attributes that are are like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, I do suppose that uh, one area where engineers want to have a, a certain similarity is, you know, we think of marshmallows as being soft and, and we're constantly told that engineers should have soft skills. Uh, we had uh, Dave Goldberg on on a previous episode and he's, he had taken to calling them sharp skills as opposed to soft skills because we so frequently think of uh, something as being soft as maybe being less important. And he felt that they were very important uh, to engineers. But, but just to give a, a sense of, of perhaps the magnitude of the problem, uh, let me read this, uh, uh, this quote from an article that is in the, uh, the Association for Talent Development. Uh, 
And they said uh, German author Dietrich Schwanitz, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, when comparing the levels of soft skills of hypothetical graduates of mechanical engineering programs with that of a history of arts major in 1999, rated the mechanical engineer at the level of a caveman. Yet even today, many graduate from engineering programs with little exposure to soft skills and thus do not feel that soft skills are important in career success. Yeah, but history of arts majors suck at separation of variables and writing C code. So <laughs> the, the whole evaluation is flawed. Where did he find a caveman's soft skills? You know, to form a baseline. Ooh, is this a hypothetical history of arts caveman? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm just wondering what the control is here. Hmm. <laughs> the control is somebody who hates engineers. Hmm. Not enough variables, or not enough, uh, <laughs> not enough information. Actually, I know nothing of Dietrich, so I'm just assuming. But uh, he is <laughs> right. But sometimes the truth hurts. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think too that sometimes the objective is different. For for engineers, we're often we're often uh, driven by solving a particular technical problem or finding an answer. And for a lot of people, that's not it. Finding Finding a technical answer is not where the joy is. It's it's either in addressing human needs or having some human interaction or making a profit. Um, and uh, certainly, I've I've witnessed a lot of decisions where it might not be the the premier technical solution, but the objective there was to make money. Uh, and so uh, it wasn't it, you know it just wasn't an engineering decision all the time. It a lot of times was a business decision. And actually, I think engineers can definitely fall – could bifurcate into two separate groups if I'm going to use a uh, cartoonish vision of my experiences with engineers. Mm-hmm. Those that are overselling their idea as the only reasonable idea and those who are totally unable to sell their idea and thus are drowned out by the first group. Mm-hmm. And and so in your experience, what's the you know, what's the relative percentage of those that, that oversell versus those that let's say undersell? I don't know. They both lose to the bullshit artists, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, so so is that just a matter of volume? Yeah, well I mean that in message. I mean when message is more important, uh somebody who's promising the impossible in an impossible amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um they win over somebody who's pre- presenting a painful, rational <laughs> path. Right. So, so I, I think of uh, two characteristics that I've heard of. One is that, that the person who speaks up more often in a group is more often believed. And that if you want to change somebody's mind, trying to feed them the facts is the wrong way to go about it. Yes. Both of which would seem to fight against the typical engineering personality. Yes, I I, mm-hmm. I would agree. <laughs> All right. I don't know. I, I tend to be pretty blunt, but also I'm t- much more of a just the facts, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Kind of engineer, but. Well, so, so you've worked in, in I, I take it you're working in a smaller organization now, but you've worked in larger organizations in the past. Is yep. That right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is the is the demand for um, 
well, let's stick with communication for the time being as the first skill. So let's let's venture into the, one of the first soft skills that always gets uh, presented as important for engineers is communication. Uh, and that's both written communication and oral communication. I suppose these days, you know, visual communication, if you can present graphs and, and make videos and do whatever you have to do to get across the idea. So is the, the expectation for your communication skills, is it different working for a small organization than it was for a large organization? Uh, I don't know. That's not a good mm-hmm. answer, but it's a, uh, what's an honest answer. That's fine. I don't know that. I don't know that it's all that different. Um, mm-hmm. I think the reaction's a little bit different. The more layers of bureaucracy, the more, I guess, people who have small voices get drowned out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's just, there's a much smaller audience, right? Which makes things different, but not necessarily comparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. So uh, let me try it this way. So one might think that at a smaller organization, when there's fewer people to communicate with, that you can get by more frequently with verbal communication as opposed to a lar- larger organization where you might have to write more things down so that it can be shared amongst uh more people. Well, when you say write things down, what do you mean? Collaborating by email consensus, or are you talking about communication of, say, you know, technical progress or technical hurdles, or just yes? Yes, but but you you raise a good point, and that is uh, sometimes I wonder if all this about communication is the idea that others expect engineers to keep the organization out of trouble. And if the the engineer isn't proactive in speaking up in meetings and saying, hey, this is going to get you in trouble, or writing emails that say, hey, this is going to get you in trouble, or presenting presentations that say, this is going to get you in trouble, then the organization is upset. And they say, hey, engineers should be better at communication. Yeah, but at the – I would also say I have never experienced, which is not to say that it isn't super common – Somebody say, you know, blank fecal matter has, hits the fan. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody told me this was gonna was gonna gonna happen or not gonna happen. I, I've 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 never seen a team of engineers not been very communicative of uh, the present state of their project. Often with great, uh, um, you know, exacerbated tones. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. Have you guys ever encountered anything like that? I know that's the typical what management would say when they want communication, but at the same time, is that a red herring? I I don't know. I, so I was in a, I was working for a company and we were doing, uh, we were in the process of machine design. We had, I don't know, three, four, five engineers working on various, I was working more on the project engineering side, not so much the design of the equipment but was trying to coordinate some of that. And we had several engineers working on the design of the equipment. And anytime you go into designing new equipment, you know, you've never done it before. You don't know exactly, you've not done it before. You don't know exactly what to expect. And so you don't want to, you don't want to uh, yell fire too soon, but, but the program got deep into, you know, development and all of a sudden the equipment wasn't working Mm -hmm. and there was, you know, great. Well, why didn't you tell us it wasn't working before? Well, uh, I was the project engineer. I wasn't developing the design. Uh, uh, you know, I wasn't doing the design work myself. 
and I really didn't know, you know, I assumed that somebody else was, it, the uh, design engineers were not reporting to me. So it really wasn't my job to check in them on a, uh, with them on a daily basis. And so I, you know, there was lots of uh, afterwards post-mortem, you know, why, why didn't we know more and why weren't the engineers more communicative and, and why wasn't this being shared? And the re- reality was the, the designers didn't know they, they hadn't designed this equipment before. They didn't know it was not going to work until we ended up with it on the prototype floor and it didn't work. I don't know, but I mean, is that really a lack of communication or is that just an implicit assumption? Like, I mean, I do, do, do every time you take on a project as an engineer, do you have to have like the Apple like terms of service, you know, before you task me with doing this, you know, here's what you should expect. We've never done this before. You know, <laughs> this is what I'm not liable for. Yes. Right. So, so all I'm trying to do is draw a, and I'm just playing are, devil's are, advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, and I am too. I'm, I'm trying to draw a, uh, see if there's an argument to be had in the realm of communication. Hey, it's great. Everybody should be doing it. And against, Hey, they are always saying engineers need to communicate and that engineers are the ones with the poor soft skills because there's something different about what the engineers are doing. And if, if, you know, so there's, there's higher expectations for the engineers to communicate than there is for other parts of the organization. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not drawing a conclusion. I'm just throwing that out as, as a discussion point. Yeah. uh, At the same time, let's, let's, let's also keep in mind who's writing the critiques, if you will. Um, you know, to put on my arrogant engineer hat for a second, it, it isn't totally uncommon. I have heard plenty of people actually refer to what engineers do as magic. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how it works. It just, you know, it might as well be an incantation. Right. <laughs> and that there's limits in both time and the ability to make progress on any individual problem is not something that, unless they've done it before, you know, and you have management that's in tune to that kind of process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't know that. I don't know that they know how to manage their expectations and thus mm-hmm. they chalk up everything to a lack of communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what do you think about the possibility that engineers I mean, not, you know, I don't want to engineers as a whole. I, mean, I don't want to draw too, too brief, uh, uh, too large a, a generalization block. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. But, but I think sometimes it's the case where the engineer goes, I have this magic and I don't want to share it with anybody else. And so I'm not going to, I don't want to tell them exactly how I do it. If I tell them exactly which program to open up and which variable to change, they could get anybody to do it. So I'm always going to be a little aloof and be a little mysterious. Uh, so that they always have to come back to me and I can maintain my uh, well-paying job. Well, I do not doubt that that exists. I've never experienced it. Yeah, I can't say as um, I've had anybody who purposely hid something just to mm-hmm. secure their own job. Yeah, who obfuscated their code in order to, you know, such that they were the only people that can read it. However, there is a couple websites that basically people post source code that looks like it was intentionally done that way. But was not. No, it was like it looks like people intentionally made their code unreadable, right? So you, it makes you wonder whether they're bad coders or did it intentionally, or both. 
Oh, I think they did. But, <laughs> but right. Okay. Okay. So, but no, uh, I I get what you're saying, and since we're both playing devil's advocate here, sure. I think I think that's less of an issue, and it's more about people. I think this has. I think the classical criticism of engineers in terms of communication ends up dealing coming back to managing expectations. Mm-hmm. A lot of it too. What I've seen is people, you know, when they expect communication from engineers, they, you know, that whole it must be magic thing is because they expect to get hit, you know, just across the face with a giant math equation, and you know, here you go, here's the equation, you figure it out. Um, instead of having, you know, the engineer writing it, tailor it to their audience. <laughs> and especially if it's, if you're giving people um, potentially bad news or at least expressing um, uncertainty, people tend to want even more information, which is the almost the wrong thing to ask for at that point. Uncertainty doesn't necessarily get helped in technical situations by simply asking for more information. There may not be any more. There may not be any guarantees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that next revision going to work? I need to know if it's going to work. I <laughs> it should. I don't know, though. I mean, I think in that case, they just want to know what you're doing to assure them that you're trying to make it work. You know, yeah. at some level, they have to understand that you can never 100% guarantee. But if you say, well, we're just, you know, slapping some uh, bypass capacitors on the board and hoping for the best or we're just adding extra grease to these, you know, uh, gears and hoping they don't they don't have too much friction and we'll ju- we'll just play it by ear and, and see how it goes. You know, they want to know like, well, you know, we started 2 days ago this long-term uh, you know, 2 week test to run it at high temperature and full load and you know, if this fix holds up, you know, we'll have a reasonable level of confidence. We're also checking the layout and we found some crossed wires, so we're, we're fixing that and, you know, yada, yada. They just want to know that you're making progress, not, you know, I'm going to rubber stamp this is 100%. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've had some good managers. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, the more common is they expect you to know exactly what's going to happen and the fact that something didn't work out well why didn't you know what did you do wrong mm-hmm. yes it's, it's the engineer's fault that things went pear shape yeah. or at least the the concern that that's what's going to happen um and the yeah. engineers the the low lowest are low enough down in the organization they're expendable i'll go find another engineer I'll find someone who gives me the right answer. Someone with a three point six six GPA instead of your three point six. <laughs> the right. uh, I I think Herman's right too. It I think if you can give people contextualized information, you know, we had this, you know, we're doing this revision. It, it addresses this issue, this issue, and this issue, this issue. This bypass capacitor is meant to help with ringing on this particular circuit. Tests have shown that it should. We hope it does in the next board. Always have problem, fix, expected result in your response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's important that uh, delivering bad news sometimes makes one feel good to get it off your chest. But to, you want to follow that up with, well, here here are the options. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and what what we can do response. Just dumping and saying it's a problem is not what people want to hear. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a hundred percent right. Any young engineers, that's you never ever say that. You know, almost never point out a problem unless you have a solution. Right. Yeah. One of the one of the things I found helpful back um, at my old job was you know helping. We was nice enough that we were designing to Intel specifications for their processors. So I always had that anchor point that you know the field engineers or the customer or you know, the designer who maybe wanted to change some feature, I could always anchor it back to, we have to pass these specs no matter what. So, you know, if they were going to make a design change or the field guys wanted to push some exotic capacitor mix to a customer, I could say, well, this, this will work because of X, Y, and Z, but you're going to run into a problem with A, you know, and it's going to affect uh, your transient response at the high uh rate transients that Intel demands and will you may fail there. So you're going to have to change your compensation and iterate on the design again and let them know ahead of time, like there's risks involved. Um, so it was nice to always have a, a common anchor point that I could draw parallels to and say, you can change this, but it's going to mm-hmm. affect this that we have to pass no matter what. So test it. Whereas if I was doing something, I guess a little more nebulous, like uh reusable spaceships for, you know, <laughs> SpaceX. Um, not many people have done that before, so you can't anchor it to, you know, as long as you're meeting the escape velocity of Earth, I guess you're okay. I don't know. <laughs> but not too much. I'm not a rocket scientist. <laughs> um, as we've been talking about this, I, I keep thinking of, I don't know why, um, when Boeing does a new aircraft, I'm sure Airbus and everyone else does this too, but I, the video I saw was from inside Boeing where they snap the wing. Oh, is that where they like bend it up above the aircraft? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I I don't think that's static loading. I, I can't remember which one it is, but anyways, the uh, the I actually saw, had a Boeing engineer provide context and kind of explain, give commentary on that video where you have this test that's going on and all of the corporate and management, all upper management and all the corporate executives are at the test. And I'm thinking like, what's the worst thing? Like if, if we're talking about, you know, communication of expectations, it's got to be the worst possible scenario. <laughs> you know, talk about somebody looking over your shoulders, you're running the test and they, they hope to God, I mean, they built a plane to basically snap its wings off. And, yeah. uh, my favorite part about it was so it has to get to you know like 150 percent of whatever it's loaded uh, or its rated value is which is really difficult and then it has to snap at 100 like 151 percent and you're like well why is that and it's well because if it snaps any higher than that you wasted company money making it too <laughs> company <laughs> money and you wasted weight making it too strong right. and i'm like <laughs> how do you manage expectations going into that it just seems like an, such an amazing set of requirements with the highest stakes test whatsoever like, that you could imagine and then right. if there's a failure <laughs> oh jeez yeah if it snaps at 125 percent, there's a lot of uh, uh, head scratching to be done and maybe a lot of uh, head chopping to be done. Yeah, I think a lot of firing to be done. Yeah, I think it would be more of uh, 125%. Yeah, it's bad, but at least then there's probably something, a little bit of low hanging fruit you could, you know, you could grab to fix the issue and at least bump you up a few percentage points and maybe some medium uh, 
flaw. I think it would be worse if it was snapping at like 143 and you were like 7% off. Like, you're like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, we we're so close. Like, there's a rounding error somewhere or something. <laughs> there would be a lot, a lot less obvious places to look. I think hitting the 151 and not hitting 170 is, it would be the tougher part of that test. That too. Oh my gosh, yeah. I was almost dead nuts on it. It has to break at 154%. Explosive, explosive rivets that when they're loaded to 151%, they pop. <laughs> <laughs> Just on the test plane, though. Yes, yes. Nope. It's got to work that way in real life, too. Otherwise, you can't certify it. Oh. Yeah, there's the, uh, I think, all Nippon Airways or something like that, where the pilot fell asleep and the plane went into a dive and he pulled up and bent the wings. Everyone hmm. made it safe, but it wrecked the airframe. <laughs> and it's like a car, too. Once the frame is uh, bent, you know, it just never flies the same. <laughs> No. It makes you wonder, too, who came up with the spec? Who decided 154% was the right amount? And how did they communicate the that one to everybody else? Yes. Right. Right. Well, and so as you're as you saying that, Carmen, I was thinking about the fact that one of the soft skills that gets recommended for engineers, and, and in our list of five items, we don't have it uh, enumerated, but – uh, teaching was an important skill, and I think that sort of goes along to what you were talking about is sharing the ideas and finding a way to communicate your engineering skills, your your engineering excellence in a way that other people can understand, whether it be through you know, stories or analogies or uh, simplifying the, the work that you've done, but finding some way to, to make others understand uh, the meaning and importance of your engineering work. Yeah. Yeah, but I, at the same time, there also needs to be expectation management, uh, you know, on the engineer too. I mean, not everybody's good at teaching. That's an entirely different skill set. I mean, that's a whole major and specialization in school. <laughs> right. It's not. It's not a hundred percent fair to ask every engineer to be a good teacher. Right. But I guess that depends on how you define teaching. You know, is it getting your point across to management and making them understand why you need to spend their money? Or is it, uh, you know, stand up at a lecture hall and present to other engineers about a topic? So that's a good point. So in engineering school, uh, you, most engineers at some point, they make you go through uh, some sort of literature course or English course or writing course, you know, English 101 type stuff. Uh, they make you go through a communications course, at least I did in my undergrad, where you had to give some, several presentations, and they told you about the theory of communicating. Uh, and uh, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, technical writing uh, that gets worked into your to your uh, homework uh, as you go along through engineering. That I, at least at, at the school I'm at, uh, you know, some of the assignments you have to write them up as a memo, as you would to your boss, that kind of thing. Sometimes. You have to give a formal engineering report. Uh, so how effective is that? How effective was your en- engineering education in preparing you for the types of communication you had to do or you have to do in industry? Um, <laughs> I guess it's a coin toss. I mean, my, my lab mm-hmm. reports were grossly simplified uh, in some respects and overcomplicated in other respects. Um, <laughs> you know, I've never had to do an official formalized, like, here is a lab report from the lab. Um, you know, it's usually just a couple of paragraphs in Word with a, uh, a scope shot or two or a graph or, mm-hmm. you know, an Excel document or something. 
Um, it's never the big formalized document that they say, but you know that could change it at my new job here. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it is, but you know whatever, we'll find out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think at school there's a lot of focus on research and academia and IEEE style format papers. And while yes, it's certainly possible I may write an article that could wind or a paper that might will get published in IEEE at some point in my career, it's not nearly as prevalent as, you know, the classes would make it make it out to be. I had several where the final project had to be done in IEEE format. I think of at least four off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. And I've never had to do anything that formalized either. So it's it that was good because it helped me in some ways, but not in others. And I don't know. It was it was a toss up. Okay. Yeah, I think academia misses out on the probably the single most common form of communication, especially written communication in, in industry. And that's emails. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's also kind of hard to replicate too in academia as well. It is, um, but there's just a, there are some things you write in an email and some things you don't, um, and there's just a lot of uh, a lot of people are not any good at writing emails, and we've talked about this uh, previously, and I think it's going to get it's getting worse, a lot more uh, text speak in business emails. Uh, don't you get me started. <laughs> I'm lucky. I haven't seen that that pisses me off. Every now and then it'll slip in. It it depends on what it is. No one's ever done it in a main thread, but you know, one of those like, "Hey, thanks for sending that off." Sometimes someone will put a smiley face. Whatever. I don't care about that. And that's one thing. Yeah. But if you got to, you know, go and okay, what does that four letter abbreviation mean? What does that three letters mean? Um, which I have seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never fired off an email like, Hey guys, I smoked that test board. Lol. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't usually frame my emails that way. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's like hieroglyphics. I just do it all in emojis. (laughs) (laughs) To use a lot of the uh, poop emoji. Yeah. Poop emoji, ASCII art. You know, I try to have a theme for every day of the week. (laughs) (laughs) I I paid for a flash seminar, you know, so I could learn how to make GIFs and uh, GIFs and, Sometimes I, I I just get creative with it. Right. Right. Well, so, so uh, way back in episode 16, we talked with uh, Jeff Ellis about <laughs> critical we thinking. We didn't do anything in episode 16, Jeff. That was you. Okay. <laughs> Chris and I talked with Jeff Ellis about critical thinking, and he made the comment that liberal arts students uh, tend to be better critical thinkers. What? Yes, he said that because they had to more often come up on you know, works of literature that or art, whatever, and that were you know somewhat foreign to them, uh, dissect it, examine it, compare it against other things, uh, in a way that engineers often don't have to. I mean the the uh, you know the engineering curriculum with the math and stuff, it's pretty consistent. I mean you may end up with differences in notation, uh, but the equations generally mean the same thing. There, it's not a matter of interpretive. Uh, you don't you don't have to interpret the meaning of the equation as much as you would you know interpreting the meaning of Hemingway uh in in one of his novels. So Yeah. I mean I I could see that too. You know, even even the standard quote unquote drill problems of literature, you know, what are the the themes, find some imagery. It it's still not 
you still have to go back and reinterpret the text. It's not like you can say, uh, you know, integrate sine x and for homework, integrate cosine x, you know, where it's there's there's mm-hmm. steps and it's always going to be one thing. You know, cosine doesn't change from book to book. <laughs> yeah, but but math isn't necessarily engineering. Well, no, <laughs> but how many, you know, engineering classes were you just doing the problems out of the book where there were known solutions and it really wasn't up for much interpretation? You got to pick a value of resistors so that the power was less than a watt. Well, okay, there's anything, you know, there's an infinite number of resistors that'll work, basically. I don't know. I had a bad experience in my poetry class after I'd gotten through most of my engineering curriculum. Um, It was my last general requirement left. And my general feeling was things are so open and encouraging of interaction that, or, or of, of people coming up with their own responses mm-hmm. that there was no right solution. Wasn't well, And I mean, you know, I mean, if you find some notes from the author, that's one thing, but isn't that kind of the point of poetry and, and novels is to kind of let you wander off in your own little mind and interpret it for yourself? Yeah, but at what point at what point does an analysis just become a Rorschach test at that point? You know, uh, uh, for example, the the one that I literally lost my mind on was a oh, was it a Byron poem? I think I can't remember, but anyways, it was a poem and it was talking about the cliffs of Dover and there's a lot of Im- imagery of continental Europe and the flags and somebody walking on a beach and um and some real nationalistic stuff. I, I wish I actually knew the poem off the top of my head. But anyways, so I, as an engineer, went to the root. Oh, well, what was going on at, at the exact, because you can find out the month that it was published, mm-hmm. what was going on. Ah, you know, the Franco-Prussian War was starting. Oh, the, that makes, you know, the colors of the flags of the countries involved are, are mentioned in the uh, poem, you know, that kind of stuff. And, oh, this is a poem about the Franco-Prussian War and why – I think Franco-Prussian. And, it was, uh, and why, you know, an Englishman basically happy that England is staying out of the problems of the continent and, you know, isn't war terrible. But people were basically saying, well, this is a poem about love, you know, and, and somebody lost their – you know, must have lost a loved one or, you know, and it was none of, uh, and it finally got to me and I was like, no, this is a poem about war and staying out of war. You know, and it's very clearly bullet point by bullet point. Look at the evidence. And I, I don't buy the critical thinking argument <laughs> because of that one data point, <laughs> which is exactly how engineering works. Exactly. I had one good data point that fits my preconceived notion. Yep, you cherry-picked it, and that's all that matters. It's the one that goes on the, yeah. the front page of the PowerPoint. I hate the fact that you're 100% right about a lot of the the curriculum is not necessarily critical thinking, but I feel like somehow I was imbued with a tremendous curriculum in critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that, too, with your poetry class could be, you know, that it wasn't taught types of analysis. I mean, you could certainly do in just about any poem, like a like you did, a very um, intellectual analysis where you're going through looking for dates and you know facts and figures that you can pull from from history to pull into that poem and see if it was about current events. And then there's the more uh, 
higher plane, for lack of a better term, aloof. You know, just what does it make you feel on a, an emotional level? <laughs> yeah, th- that, that's what I meant by the Rorschach test. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's Let me show you this blob I mean, and you tell me what it makes you feel. Yeah. Now, if the test was, you know, give me a literal interpretation of this poem, uh, and you came out with, you know, floating in a cloud on a dream or something, and it was clearly about war, well, then, yeah, you're wrong. But if it was just a general, how, what, do you, what can you tell me about this poem, then you're allowed to pick your own analysis technique, which in a ways is a lot like an open-ended engineering problem. As long as you can make a good enough case for it, I mean, who's to say your way is less right than another way? Yeah, that's not – and that's – well, you are right that that is how modern undergraduate coursework happens. That's my issue is that's not critical thinking. That's just getting you to emote on a on a pre-agreed to topic. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I feel like we've strayed a little bit. Was this quote, Jeff, that you talked about? Was it about undergraduate or just literal liberal arts in general? Because then we could say, well, yeah, undergraduate engineering isn't really critical thinking either. You have to go to grad school and you do your own open-ended research, and that's a separate debate. Well, uh, uh, Mr. Ellis's point was that he found that liberal arts majors tended to be very good critical thinkers, whereas engineers sometimes failed in that regard. Gotcha. Well, then I'm going to say that we're talking about grad student to grad, you know, you could be talking about grad students then where you have to do your own research and own interpretation and do your own research of poems and and whatnot. Because, yes, you could wind up very pigeonholed in undergrad, just like you can in engineering. Right. And to answer your question, Brian, uh, Mr. Ellis was an aerospace engineer working at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Dang it. <laughs> Although he could still hate engineers. We don't know. <laughs> he, he's a self-loathing engineer. It's like the worst kind. I know. He's also out of his mind. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I was but, like but isn't there, but, but isn't there some value in understanding, trying to see how somebody, you know, this poem that you think is, I'm sorry, this poem that was obviously about war that other people were interpreting as being about love isn't there some value in in straining your uh, your mind, thinking outside the box, trying to figure out how to change your thinking, your emotions to match up with this person who comes at it from a different angle, uh, so you can better understand that person, and if need be, try to convince them that that uh, they're wrong. <sighs> trying to agree, I agree with you, but at the same time, I don't like the consequence of agreeing with you. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. I am, but that gets back to my original criticism is somebody who's, who's just an effective communicator, but has no technical, gets back to the, even the meaning of, of, of effective communication is effective communication, simply persuasion, getting people on your side, or is it also the effective, uh, um, effectively imparting the truth or at least a the known condition if i convince you of something that doesn't exist does that mean i'm a good communicator or just a con man i'm telling you i'm telling you things you want to hear right right well these are valid questions uh in that we are as engineers we we go off to school for at least four years and sometimes uh, more than that and certainly if we go back for advanced degrees we go back for for more years uh, of a specific type of training that isn't delivered to many other people. Uh, and so we we learn to think in a certain way. So once we've all been trained in this relatively the same, we'll, we'll put 
all engineers under a big umbrella, although that's risky. Mm -hmm. uh, we say, hey, we can communicate with one another. Now, you have a boss who has a degree in law or accounting or uh, business management. <sighs> now, <laughs> there's just no way that you can convince that person in a day, an hour, a month, a year to understand the problem in the same way you do. Now, if they're a good manager, they understand that's not their job uh, to understand it the same way. But but from our standpoint as engineers, we have to get our, across the salient points. You know, what is the big issue? You know, is the product going to fail? Is it a small problem? Is it a big problem? Is it a problem with, uh, is it a problem in, you know, language? Is it a problem with uh, structure? Is it a problem with uh, uncertainty, delivery? Uh, we at least have to get across the the point so that the manager can take some sort of action. Uh, again, it, it's not enough to to yell fire. Also, usually in a good system, uh, you know, there's usually some sort of liaison between the deeply technical people and the others, as a nebulous term, to, you know, to make it. Um, you know, as an apps engineer, I speak one way with the designers of a part. You know, you can definitely dive into some nitty gritty and, uh, you know, talk control methodologies and, and whatnot and use your own shorthand and stuff that you've come up with. But I would, I would never talk that way to, you know, a customer who doesn't care how our chips work internally, um, to a point. Mm -hmm. They have to have a, a rough overview, but there's a, there's a, Big difference between saying, you know, uh, there's an amplifier that goes into a block that does some filtering and decides whether or not to turn this transistor on versus, uh, you know, what's actually going on at a transistor level. Um, mm -hmm. So my job as an applications engineer is to, you know, filter what design says into something the customer can understand. And that, uh, you know, that can vary greatly depending on whether the customer is power supply design expert at customer X or, uh, you know, just some engineer who has to dabble in power but isn't really sure what he's doing or a student looking for help or, um, you know, just someone who's never heard of a switching regulator. And I kind of have to play to the strengths of a customer and mm -hmm. turn, you know, my deep knowledge of the part into something they can understand. Right. So, yes, in, in, in an ideal world, I guess, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't interface directly the, the most technical person to the least technical person. There's always some sort of liaison or, you know, apps guy in between. Someone who right. maybe maybe can't design the chip themselves but can also do a better job of telling marketing and sales and customers how to use the part and what's going on inside of the part better than the designer can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's not to say there aren't some brilliant designers I've worked with who can do that, but as a as a rule of thumb, usually you need a, a go between, a translator, a middleman, sort of. <laughs> right. So if you were to rank your the importance of communication skills, uh, verbal, you know, the spoken communication, written, you know, email or reports, and let's say you know graphical communication, you know, laying out nice presentations, charts, PowerPoint slides, uh, which, which is more, most important to you? PowerPoint. Okay. Uh, why? <laughs> just, sometimes you just got to pick the devil, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a good answer to this one anymore. Cause my, my role's changing a little bit at this, this new job and it's, it's definitely still, you know, email is 
is very important. But one issue I've not really issue, but one little quirk of the job um, at my old job, I was fortunate enough to have my PCB layout guy down the hall from me. So when we were doing a board, we could pop into each other's office and talk for two minutes and point at the monitor and, you know, yada, yada. Now we got to figure it out. We're all done in two seconds. Now I have to mm-hmm. set up a damn WebEx meeting and share my screen. <laughs> and I caught myself today talking to my layout guy who's located in California and he's a good guy. And I'm trying to explain what I want done. And I'm pointing at the monitor and saying like, over here, if we could move these capacitors, I was like, damn it, go grab the mouse. Like, he doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, so I, I have yeah. to get better at my verbal and, you know, verbal communication skills in this regard. But, um, right. Yeah. I think you need a touch screen. I do. Oh my God. I hate my new laptop so bad. <laughs> I don't ever use the touch screen yet, but it, the display settings are all screwed up when I plug it into the dock versus when I pulled it off and I can't find all the right settings yet. <laughs> It's terrible. Just keep my desktop icons where I put them, damn it. <laughs> and, and what about you, Adam? What uh, what do you find to be the most important mode of communication? I'd say written and partly because written communication is permanent. Mm-hmm. You know, Once you write an email and send it off, it's there forever. You never escape. Well, you could, theoretically can never escape. But once you write a report, it's there mm-hmm. to look at in 10 years. You know, right. verbal communication, you know, it's gone once you say it. Um, and you can kind of control the audience. Written communication, it's anybody can see it. And maybe this is more, um, the, in the public eye in which I, uh, I, I work. But, but yeah, uh, written communication has got a, a very big chance coming back to haunt you. And reality is, it's the majority of what I, how I communicate. Um, mm-hmm. emails, memos, instant messages, um, you know, word and Excel are well, word mostly and, uh, outlook are open more often than any sort of fancy, uh, engineering software on my computer. Right. Do you guys use instant message clients at work? I always shut mine off. Nope. Never have. Yes, but mostly to, um, time phone calls. Mm. Cause it'll <laughs> tell me when people are at their desk or not. It's like, oh, I can catch that person now. <laughs> no, I always shut it off. I, nothing's ever instant or needed instantly for me, and it just bothers me when someone just instant messages me and expects an answer right away. Yeah. The other thing it's helpful for is, hey, do you want to go grab lunch? Mm, yeah, that too. <laughs> the informal communication. Yeah, but I got right. a, I got a fancy work cell phone now, so I can just text everybody. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I, I see that Adam's use of the instant messenger, uh, he's, he's taken a tool intended for one purpose and used it for something else, uh, which, is, which brings us to soft skill number two, which is uh, creativity. I think we're <laughs> jumping all over this list here, Jeff, as opposed to going in any one particular order. <laughs> hey, I'm going in order. I don't know what you guys are we're doing. We're going to be here for I'm like four hours if we're going to repeat all these <laughs> things. <laughs> I'm already on collaboration. Yeah, I jumped to leadership, man. Come on. Yeah, I talked yeah. about adapting. I specifically use that in the apps engineer filter. Your list is all full of holes now. Oh man! <laughs> well, so let me uh, just let's let's uh, put a point on it. Then is uh, is creativity important to engineers? And how in the world are engineers supposed to improve their creativity? No, I only color inside the lines. <laughs> 
but which color do you use? I look it up in my my uh, reference guide, my manual. <laughs> Colored by numbers. Yes, yes. Um, standard allowable colors for flowers, balloons, bunnies. I don't know. It's in the charts. Uh, creativity. <laughs> right. Well, so so the article that, that I'm looking at here says that some of the, the surveys of companies indicated that engineers are uncreative. And I think that probably we, there's a whole spectrum, and so probably may, many of them are not creative. But certainly most of the good engineers I know have crea- are creative in some, in some way. We had, uh, we had a listener who had written in and noted that many of our uh, – because of our uh, individual professions, we tend to be a little more aligned with the design process – because in a certain way, we each have ability to do a certain amount of design work. And he was noting that he was more on the maintenance side where he's having to maintain things that were already designed. But I think no less, if you're a maintenance engineer, you have to be very creative about, you know, what tools and what fixes and how you get things done on time and under budget. Um, it seems to me that that creativity is, is really important. And this is listed as a soft skill by how do you do engineering without being creative? Uh, personal <laughs> mini rant maybe i don't know um, go, go for it I, I don't think i've ever seen an engineer who wasn't creative i just think that a lot of engineers take all their creativity and put it someplace that isn't necessarily work unless you've managed to land a dream job where you can be um mm. because you know there's there's certainly the company wants you to be creative to a point i mean there's a lot of times where myself or someone else or you know whatever said hey like Let's do this. Like this could save us money. It could do this. It could do that. And it gets shot down because there's no time or it would cost too much money to implement it or, you know, there, there's some reason that, that shoots it down. And it doesn't mean they weren't creative. It just means it wasn't feasible or no one wanted to take the risk, even though it might have been sound and, you know, perfectly mm-hmm. reasonable and he made a good case for it or she. Mm-hmm. You know, so after a while, why why bother? Just you can be creative within the framework that they give you, and you know, everyone says they want someone who's going to move and shake the world, but not every job requires that, right? So, I, I think that the definition, or maybe the interpretation of the definition of creativity, really is important here. Yeah, the marketing slides say one thing when they're trying to recruit you; the actual job requires another. <laughs> Well, and I'd say engineering is, by its general virtue, creative. I mean, you're you're taking equations and and theories and applying them to solve a problem, and that process, in my mind, is a creative process. Just okay, take this thing here and and solve this thing here. Mm-hmm. How do I make those two fall together? It's not. It's it's beyond just sheer number crunching and sheer logic. Um, but that's not, I, I think that a lot of non-engineering types don't see the creativity in that. It's like, oh, okay, you know this physics, this science, and you have this problem, and yeah, you just make them, yeah. They don't understand that that step in the middle. Yeah, and I, I think we've uh, we've we've discussed in the a past episode, and I can't remember which one, that, that – uh, there's always a clamor for innovation and creativity, but not not everybody really wants it. You deliver it, and and that makes life difficult for them because you're stepping outside the box, and now they have to 
extend the rules or change the rules or deal with the changes that you're proposing. Yeah, there's no skew for what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. It, you get some pushback on that. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's some some validity to that. Well, and and that uh, is actually a good segue into the next thing. People don't like change. Uh, that's true. Most people don't like change. Some people thrive on it. <laughs> okay. Many people do not like change. Organizations generally don't like change. Um, but one of the, the key soft skills uh, in our list of skills is adaptability. Indeed. And so do you think engineers are any less or more adaptable than other professions? You know, I, I don't know. I think it really more depends on the person than uh, engineers in general. I know a lot of very adaptable engineers because they have to be. And I know a lot of people that, nope, this is it. This is what we're doing. This is the way I've always done it. Yeah. This is, this is my first pass at the analysis and uh, there's just no other way it can be done. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and so what is it about adaptability that is so important? Um, I mean, just talking earlier to my earlier point about how I have to, you know, filter the documentation I'm putting out, you know, depending on who it's going to, whether it's students or other power engineers or just other electrical engineers or marketing, um, Mm -hmm. is you have to adapt your, you know, adapt your documentation, your, your, you know, your message to make sure that they get the key points no matter what. If the key point is you're going to save a ton of board space, you know, you don't start off to a, you know, a a non-technical person saying like, well, you're going to lose like capacitors x y and z made from you know the bulk caps or you just say like look you, you drop four components and it's going to save you you know this amount of space which is this amount of money mm-hmm. um you know they, they don't care what type of capacitors they're losing they just know that i have to buy less um you know to to the another engineer you can say yeah you're losing these capacitors and uh you know, but don't worry about your stability issues because our architecture compensates for that because of X, Y, and Z features. Oh, okay. Well, now they know like, okay, I'm not making as much of a trade-off as I would think and I can save, you know, board space. Um, right. And you can let them draw more conclusions from that and, you know, you maybe add sub-bullet points to the big one, less board space. Right. So, you're, you know, that, adapting the documentation. Mm-hmm. And so let me ask this uh, uh, to Brian specifically, because you've been in an industry long enough that you could probably speak to this. I've been out of, uh, with my move into academia, I've been out of industry for a while, so I'm I'm less able to speak to this. So is the rate of change of of the nature of business and the the technology you're using, is the rate changing faster now than it was, say, 10 years ago? (sighs) I was told there would be no reflection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I don't think so. I don't think things are, I mean, things are constantly changing, but it's also not, actually, I'll say it this way. It depends on where you are. Like I, For example, like Slack or like GitHub, mm-hmm. those are both important new um, disruptive tools. But I don't work in an industry where, where use of those would ever be allowed. Mm, okay. And I doubt I doubt a lot of engineers. I, I, I would doubt a lot of non-software engineers would be allowed to use that. Um, because you know, we tend well, we tend to be like if you're developing hardware, you tend to be more. Um, um, careful about where your design files end up being hosted 
And, yeah. you know, what's the, what's the security of, you know, this co- cloud collaboration site. Right. But that isn't to say it doesn't happen at all, but. But at least for you personally, it doesn't feel like it's moving faster. Not really, but I also came of an age when the expectation was that things would change fast. You know, there's things that have changed and things that haven't. Like, there's things that have changed that I'm surprised have changed. And I guess what, you know, kind of shocked me and things that haven't changed and I'm surprised haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, stupid things like, why is Java still a thing? <laughs> you know. Um, I was also surprised by the rate at which rapid prototyping took off. Mm-hmm. Um, how that, how the speed with which that went from people using, you know, desktop or garage prototype stuff to companies basically putting product on people's desks. Right. That, that was surprising. But, uh, and actually, 3D printing in general, I was surprised by it. like even that you used in a production setting. That was surprising. But, you know, CAD capture hasn't really changed a whole lot in my career. Um, embedded software design hasn't changed a whole hasn't changed a whole bunch as much as micro, microchip tries to make a change constantly. Um <laughs> Now, how much of that do you think is due to the industry you work in and the um, that's have I, worked in? Yeah, I, I would, I would. That's why I would bracket all of my observations with that. A lot of the things, a lot of the high end development and cutting edge development is for industries that are a lot more open and move a lot quicker, and I guess are more transient than the industries that I tend to play in on. Right. Um, I'm not in. I'm not in the startup world. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many engineers are in the "quote unquote" startup world. Hmm. I don't know of a lot. I have no idea, but I'm guessing the number of software engineers in that world is larger than the normal the number of what we consider traditional engineers. Agreed. Okay. Well, tell you what. For the sake of uh, time, why don't we move along to soft skill number four, which is collaboration. Has, has, uh, Brian, has that changed in, in the time you've been in industry? Are you collaborating more or less than you did 10 years ago? No change. I would say actually, if we're talking about maybe the adaptability, it's, I was shocked today to be doing a FaceTime with one of my customers, you know, to troubleshoot a piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. It, 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 that's one of those things where you go, wow, this is Judson's technology. it's finally here i yeah i it's and it's so you know you always thought when the video phone would show up that would be like the thing the video phone i went to best buy and bought my you know sharp multimedia fax machine video phone right and it's oh yeah I, i guess i could see what the leds are doing in that box if we just facetime and hey we did it it's also kind of interesting how many people have that device yeah. but don't use it. They just use it, well, to talk or text. Yeah, I mean, for, like, technical support, I mean, if you're <laughs> if you're the uh, family IT guy, get your parents a crappy iPad so that when they call, you can at least find out which buttons they think they're pushing when it doesn't work. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, it, 
the TV's not working well. Mom, that's the garage door opener. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, collaboration. It's uh, I, I, it's one of these things like creativity or communication. How do you say, well, collaboration is bad? Isn't everybody for collaboration? So, I guess the the question is, how does an engineer improve their ability to collaborate? It's if you don't get it out of school. I mean, certainly in school. Uh, I always hated group projects because I always felt like I was the one pulling the group, but you did it because you had to. Um, I suppose in industry, it kind of gets the same way. It depends on how much you care about the product and how hard you pull uh, when you, if you're working with a group that isn't pulling you along. It's always a great joy to be working with a group of enthusiastic people where you know you feel like you're an equal participating and you're all pulling in the same direction, but that doesn't always happen. So. How often in, at least to you guys, because I know when I am involved in a collaboration, which, well, I guess everything's a collaboration that I work on, I have a specific role and everybody else on the team has a specific role. Mm-hmm. It's not like a group project where we're all equally qualified to do everything. I'm qualified to do this piece and this person's qualified to do this piece and this person's qualified to do this piece. And yeah, maybe there's some overlap, but it's not like one person can pull the entire team and everybody else can just slack off. Mm -hmm. Is that your guys' experience as well? Or am I just unique? No, at least from my standpoint, you know, when I was doing machine design, I didn't, I I couldn't go out in the shop and run and I didn't know how to run all the the machines in the machine shop. And I certainly couldn't do all the purchasing and I could, you know, the, 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 the project or the job of getting all these pieces together, assembled into a piece of working equipment uh, was something that I had to manage. But I saw that more as management than I did as collaboration. I mean, yes, there was a certain, I needed to work with the, you know, if I had a die vendor, I needed to work uh, uh, with with whoever was building the die to make sure it would work correctly and we could talk about material. So I guess, I guess to an extent that was collaboration, but that seemed to me just to be project management. I wasn't, it wasn't like we had a group of six designers collaborating on the design process. So am I just making too too uh too stark a distinction as to what collaboration means? No. I think there's an interesting line there between collaborating and management or project mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. And and they're they're related. And I, I think there's and maybe it's just because of uh uh where you'd worked or, or not that you ended up falling into that project management role. Right. You know, like I am not the project manager. Um, I have a sub role in every project. Right. Um, but I'm never the one. Well, I manage my little piece. Right. But I, I don't manage the, the overall project. And I view that more as collaboration because I'm not the one in charge who's going to get blamed when it's not done. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, maybe I will be, but um, I'm not the one who has to answer for it in, in uh, to management when it's not done. Um, at least, not the first round. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, and I suppose that sort of leads us into uh, uh, our fifth and final soft skill, and that is leadership, which is uh, a bit different than management. On an early episode, we talked about leadership. And we kind of came up with that there were two definitions of leadership. One is convincing people to follow, which is, I guess, the more traditional form of leadership. There's also leadership by action, 
not really convincing people through uh, influence or words, but taking action and motivating others through seeing your own action in trying to solve a problem or to to advance a cause. So in your experiences, is leadership important in the field of engineering? And if so, how do you increase and expand your leadership skills? My take on this is leadership is important for in advancement um, within many engineering organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, either becoming a project manager and, and or moving into um, supervisory and, and I'll say management, but I don't think it's not exactly what I mean. Um, roles or at least you know, lead designer type roles, which in most organizations is the way you get promoted is moving mm-hmm. into somewhat of a, a leadership supervisory management type role. Um, at least all of them that I'm familiar with yeah. being the, the best uh, traffic signal designer at the, at the company doesn't get you a promotion. Mm-hmm. It may, if there's a technical track, but even then you're still taking on temporary leadership roles of nothing else. You know, you may be the one heading up the feasibility study uh, to add, you know, new features to the next revision of the product. And, you know, can you do it, you know, with the time and budget constraints you have. Mm-hmm. And then you become sort of a manager of that little, that little piece. Yeah. Yeah, and then once the project's done, you give up your your leadership role and you go back to doodling in your office, thinking of the next pie in the sky idea or something, <laughs> right? Or work on the other three uh, three things that that you're supposed to getting done. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Only three. Well, I mean, the three that you were supposed to have completed during the time that you were working on the other thing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, so let me let me throw this uh, quote from the National Society of Professional Engineers into this conversation about leadership. Uh, they say, in an engineering context, leadership incorporates a number of capabilities which are critical in order to function at a professional level. These capabilities include the ability to assess risk and take initiative, the willingness to make decisions in the face of uncertainty, a sense of urgency, and the will to deliver on time in the face of constraints or obstacles – resourcefulness and flexibility, trust and loyalty in a team setting, and the ability to relate to others. That sounds like Superman to me. <laughs> you know, I would also say that there maybe should be a a, uh, a little bit of a filter put on the source. Uh, <laughs> okay. you, said that, you said that was NSPE? Yeah. Which the by and large is civil engineers – which is an industry that uses a lot of technicians uh, and the PEs end up becoming supervisors, leaders Mm -hmm. um, by just virtue of the, the structure. Right. And I look at things like they say the capability, the capability to assess risk and take initiative. Well, uh, that takes a long, at least in many industries that takes a long time to get really good at assessing risk. I mean, if it's, if you've, if you're, you know, building, uh, you know, the same machine over and over. Okay. After the third or fourth machine, you probably have the the hang of it, but if you're designing new equipment all the time, then how do you know, you know, you, you get better, but it's hard to do that to take initiative. Well, you know, how much initiative you take is related to how much risk you, you take, uh, the willingness to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. Well, it's not like making decisions in the face of uncertainty is always good. 
sometimes you, you're wise to uh, to wait for you know see if if the uncertainty resolves itself. So anyway, I don't need I don't need to go through these item by item, but I just a, a definition like that sort of worries me because it, it seems to me that that doesn't that doesn't encompass what a leader really does. You, you know, and I, I also don't necessarily agree that that's a definition of leadership or uh, those are attributes that good leaders often have Mm -hmm. but just because it's things that good leaders often have doesn't mean that is leadership Mm -hmm. and you can have those attributes and still not be a good leader sure in the uh as we're going through this i'm thinking back to on uh sunday morning this last week one of one of the shows was talking about the the importance of luck and how some of us are are more lucky and less lucky and you know th- there are certain you know there are certain people that are going to be seen i think as great leaders because they just happen to be at the right place at the right time and there will be other quite competent engineers who are not seen as great leaders because they happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and maybe in the multiverse you know it all averages out and we're all equally lucky in all universes i don't know but uh yeah, so so we always want to praise those that that have worked on the projects that all succeed and and go yay, good job. Uh, but and there's nothing wrong with praising those people that have have led projects to success. But I also worry that we are too frequently critical uh, and not understanding and not supportive of those who have made a good faith effort and are equally skilled, but uh, happen to have been to, assigned to the projects that either get canned for uh, non technical reasons or things just you know didn't work out it was a, it was an idea before its time mm-hmm. uh but let's let's close with uh this thought are are there any things that you think that uh you've done in your career that have made you a better leader or things that you would like to do uh to improve your leadership skills i can use a trust faller too maybe yeah definitely corporate events where you have mandatory <laughs> fun time i think it just takes practice yeah. You know, being able okay. to recognize an opportunity, uh, you know, that both interests you and could benefit you. And, uh, you know, it seems like your skills line up and, you know, throw your hat into the ring. Go for it. Right. So, so it's, it's, uh, at least what I'm hearing is it's sort of like riding a bike. You're going to have to be willing to fall over a few times before you get the hang of it. Exactly. Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. just, go to a weekend seminar at a, a Hilton and then come out being a leader. <laughs> I mean, there's ways to um, minimize the, the impact of failure or, you know, you could be um, like an assistant um, to a, a good leader that you work with and, and ask them to help mentor you and um, help them with things to gain some, some experience, but you, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's true with all of these soft skills we talked about tonight. You got to practice them. Right. You're not going to learn yes. through a book. Yeah. Yeah. Same with uh, communication skills. You know, you're going to have to get out there and document your projects and trying to explain things to non-technical people or technical people with a different focus than you, um, mm-hmm. you know, mentor, volunteer, do whatever it is you got to do. Attend the the free seminars that vendors will put on, and you know, network and learn something from the people there, as well as uh, you know, 
take note of how they present. Was it effective? Did they get their point across? What would you do differently? Mm-hmm. What would you steal from them? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So in uh, in general, then, would you be in agreement that soft skills are important for engineers? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Could make or break a career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I go back to what uh, we had James Trevelyan he wrote the making of an expert engineer on for, for a couple of our episodes. And I remember him talking about that, you know, one of the things that engineers do is they get jobs finished. They, they complete projects. And I think to the extent that, that we, we always have to work with others uh, in order to get those projects done, uh, then our ability to communicate with them, you know, to be creative, to be adaptive, to collaborate, to show leadership, all are important in uh, executing that portion of the engineering job, which is, is to finish the project. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, uh, I think soft skills probably are pretty important. Although, uh, one does not have to, uh, take on the appearance of the stay puff marshmallow man to, uh, to, to assume those say soft skills. It doesn't, doesn't hurt. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Didn't he want to destroy everything? <laughs> he was, he was the destroyer. Yeah. I, I I never understood exactly why he was so angry. Well, he was Gozer the Destroyer. Duh. Yes, but you know, was it a bad childhood? What made him the Destroyer? Actually, was it Gozer? Was it Zool? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, I'm sure somebody will will uh, write in to let you know for sure. Well, Google will tell me right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gozer the Gozerian. That's what it was. Zool was one of Gozer's henchmen. Ah. These are things you have to know. Yeah, important stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, since we since we have that important detail uh, sorted out, I'm thinking that uh, that maybe we say this episode's done and uh, we adjourn for a couple of weeks uh, until the next episode of the Engineering Commons. Sounds good to me. All right. See you soon. Right. Later, guys. Right. Bye. Take care. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.